and Alpha and Omega Ministries, we'd like to welcome you to the second of two debates. I'd like to state the thesis for the debate from the outset for the sake of clarity. The proposition for tonight's debate is Peter was given a position of primacy in the Christian church that is to be passed on to successors. Mr. Jerry Maddox is taking the affirmative position, and Mr. James R. White will be taking the negative position. I'd like to just give you a little bit of background information about our two participants. Mr. Jerry Maddox was formerly an ordained minister and theologian in the Presbyterian Church in America in Easter of 86. He, together with his wife and family, entered the Catholic Church. He was the first minister of that denomination to ever become Roman Catholic. He's graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy with highest honors in 75. He earned a Bachelor of Arts Magna Cum Laude in Classical New Testament and Patristic Greek from the University of New Hampshire in 1977. And at that time, he was inducted into National Phi Beta Kappa. He received his Master of Divinity with a concentration in systematic theology from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in 1981. He studied sacred scripture at St. Charles Borromeo Catholic Seminary of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and is a Ph.D. candidate in biblical interpretation at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, for which he is currently completing his doctoral dissertation on the Book of Revelation. A member of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Catholic Biblical Association of America, the Catholic Theological Alliance, and the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. He is taught on the faculties of Westminster Theological Seminary and St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, the Notre Dame Pontifical Catechetical Institute in Arlington, Virginia, and Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia. Mr. Matisic is now a full-time apologist with Catholic Answers, a nonprofit organization based in San Diego. And in that capacity, he writes for their monthly magazine, This Rock, and travels around the country speaking at churches and conferences, engaging in such debates. Mr. James R. White is an ordained Baptist minister and the author of The Fatal Flaw and Answers to Catholic Claims, and also two recent books, Letters to a Mormon Elder and a book on the doctrine of justification by faith. He's received his Bachelor of Arts degree in Scripture from Grand Canyon College and a Master of Arts in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the founder and director of Alpha and Omega Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona, which does apologetics work around the country. Now, the format of the debate tonight is as follows. We're going to have a series of opening statements. Mr. Matitix will go first for 25 minutes, followed by Mr. White for 25 minutes. The first rebuttal period belongs to Mr. Matitix, which will go for 10 minutes, followed by Mr. White, and then we will break for 15 minutes. After the break, we'll call you back about 13 minutes after we've started to get settled. And we'll begin the second half with the second rebuttal period, which will last only five minutes. Once again, Mr. Matitix will go first, followed by Mr. White. Then we'll have a 20-minute period of cross-examination. Mr. White will go first, followed by Mr. Matitix. And then finally, closing remarks will be offered, 10 minutes apiece, beginning with Mr. Matitix and closing the evening with Mr. White. Just real briefly, some basic ground rules for behavior. At the end of each presentation, 
you're welcome to applaud, but we'd like to keep the applause, the hoots, the hollers, the threats, and the friendlier, nasty remarks to a minimum. Actually, we'd like to rule them out altogether as not befitting the occasion at any other time. Also, there will probably not be any time left over for questions and answers. And so, unless you hear otherwise, you may simply wish to jot down questions that you have for whoever and then discuss it afterwards more informally. The timer is, for all practical purposes, the final authority. So it's going to be soul luck timer tonight. <laughs> and we'll try to strict we'll we'll try to stick strictly to that as best as possible. Time may be relative in many other parts of the universe, but not here tonight. For our opening prayer, I'd like to read a passage from Psalm 119. We pray, Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law, and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word and your mercy. Amen. We'd like to begin now with the opening statement made by Mr. Matatex. brothers and sisters in Christ, I'd like to begin my time this evening the way I began the debate we had last evening, by stating that my single passion in life and my sole desire tonight in this debate is to submit my mind, my heart, to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to believe all that he teaches, and I want to obey all that he commands. And it is precisely in obedience to Jesus Christ, my Lord and King, that I found my Protestant prejudice against the papacy beginning to cave in under the avalanche of evidence, overwhelming evidence for the papacy that I began to find in sacred scripture itself as I dug more deeply into God's inerrant word. I began to see in scripture that Jesus' plan is to exercise his lordship over our lives through the church. That the church has a fundamental role to play. And as a matter of fact, scripture uses two very intimate images to describe the intimate connection between Christ and the church. The image of body, connected organically to a head, and the image of bride, wife, connected uh, as one flesh to her husband. So that Christ works through the church, teaches through the church, saves through the church. And as a result, I saw that the scriptures speak of the church as, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 3.15, the pillar and foundation of the truth. As Jesus says in Matthew 18, Christians must listen to the church, that Christ speaks through it. 
so that as he said to the 70 elders he sent out, and if it's true of them, it's true, how much more? A fortiori of the 12 apostles who had an even higher status. Whoever hears you, hears me. But whoever rejects you, rejects me. And in rejecting me, rejects him who sent me. And I saw that the first officers of this church were Christ's hand-picked 12 apostles who inherited his teaching authority and that among these apostles, Peter had a leadership capacity. He was the chief of the apostles. And I saw furthermore that these apostles, when it was time for them to leave this earth, took the provision to appoint successors. And that these successors inherit, though not the inspiration of the apostles, their teaching authority, which must be heeded by God's people. And that in particular, Peter's successors would have a particularly uh, significant role in functioning as guardians of the gospel, the good news, God's saving truth. Now, as you heard the thesis presented tonight, you notice that in, a, in effect it has two basic parts to it. And that's what I have to defend this evening. Part one is that Jesus did indeed confer a primacy upon Peter. He intended him to have a headship, a patriarchal authority in the church. Is there biblical evidence for that? Yes or no? That's what I have to persuade you of. That's what my worthy uh, counterpart, Mr. White, is going to try to dissuade you of. And then secondly, I have to approach the issue of successors. If Peter indeed was ahead, in some sense, by Christ's own plan and appointment, did this headship transfer to any successors? And does the line of Roman bishops have any historical leg to stand on to say that we are the successors of Peter's headship and his authority? What I would like to do is to focus most of my time in this opening statement on the first point, although I hope to get to the second. And I want to turn right away to what I consider the most significant passage, and I'm sure my colleague agrees that it probably is the most significant passage for us to look at, and that is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. So if you have a Bible, please turn to it. And if you don't have a Bible tonight because uh, you're a Catholic, then uh, just, just listen carefully. You know this passage well. At the midpoint of Jesus' earthly ministry, he brings his disciples apart to put to them the most critical question of all, who is Jesus Christ? Who am I? And they produce various human opinions. Well, some say you're John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Elijah or some other prophet come back from the dead. And then Jesus says, well, what do you have to say? And at this point, it's significant that it's Peter who speaks up and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I want you to notice in Jesus' response to Peter's outburst, the response that spans verses 17, 18, and 19, I find two very interesting things about that response. Thing one, thing one and thing two, I feel like I'm reading a cat and hat book here or something to my kids. The first thing I find interesting about this response is the formal language that our Lord employs. Peter has just said, you are the anointed one, which is what the Greek word Christ, as you know, means. You are the anointed one, the Son of God. And Jesus returns the compliment of this 
kind of formal, stylistic, formulaic way of addressing himself, you are the blessed one, son of Jonah. What's going on here? Why this elevated style of language? What we have, and I think the subsequent verses bear this out, is a very formal and therefore very literarily stylized bit of conversation here. This isn't just some casual conversation. What we have here in this courtesy and response, this recognition of the person, their status, their privilege, and their father, a reference to the person's genealogy, and then Jesus reciprocating, in the case of Peter, is the language of the court. You have formal courtesy here, in other words. So something very significant is going on. Peter has perceived Jesus' office. God had sent prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament to bring us truth, which is what prophets did, to bring us life, grace, which is what priests did, to bring us righteousness, goodness, justice, which is what kings did or were supposed to do. They didn't have these in and of themselves. God is the source of our being, our knowing, and our doing. But he imparted these gifts, these graces, through these officers. And as a recognition that they did not have it in themselves, they were simply conduits through which this grace came, they had oil poured upon their heads at the beginning of their ministries. Prophets, priests, and kings did. They were anointed ones. Oil is a symbol, as you know, of the Holy Spirit. What I have to give, the prophet says, is the word of the Lord, the word from on high. It's not my own word. It's not my own truth. And the priest says, what I have to give is the forgiveness of God, not my own forgiveness or grace. I can't forgive anyone of myself. And what the king says is, it's not my job to come up with my own standards of righteousness, but to let God be king over Israel through me as his dutiful servant and citizen. And so they're all anointed. They're anointed ones. They're messiahs, to use the Hebrew word, or Christ's with a little c, to use the Greek word. But there was this expectation that someone would come one day who would do this perfectly and definitively, who would in fact be prophet, priest, and king, all three offices rolled into one, and Peter had just got done saying, you are that one, to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, you are. And what he proceeds to say here in verses 17 through 19 is, you are someone, because of this perception, which you didn't get from your own smarts, it wasn't because you're sharper than the other guys here, but God has sovereignly selected you, Simon, to receive this revelation. That's what Jesus calls it. Not by flesh and blood was this revealed to you, but by my Father in heaven. As a result, you enter into a special privileged position with reference to me, with reference to me as the Christ that you just identified me as. If Christ means prophet, priest, and king, it's very interesting to me, this is the second thing I find interesting in our Lord's language, it's very interesting to me that what Jesus says to Peter follows this threefold division. He says, Peter, you are going to, as it were, have me confer upon you a prophetic function, a priestly function, a kingly function, to be an officer in my church. First of all, in verse 17, he says that Simon has had the ability to perceive the Christhood of Jesus, again, not out of his own merit, not out of his own competence or capability, but by a prophetic insight given to him, revealed to him by the Father in heaven. There is prophetic imagery here, in other words. At a time when there was confusion 
when there was controversy, when there was chaos as to who Christ was, there was a Christological controversy here. It is Peter who utters the declarative sentence, which defines and says, this is who Jesus Christ is. Peter's words here settle the issue. God has chosen to do that through Peter. And we have to recognize that as Jesus did. If we're followers of Christ, we've got to recognize what God did, chose to do sovereignly through Peter as Jesus recognized it. When we move to verse 18, we find that we were moving from prophetic language to priestly language, where Jesus says, And I, for my part, say to you that you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church so that the gates of Hades, or Sheol, will not overwhelm it. Now, why does Jesus call Simon Rock at this point? Why does he give him this new name? I think that there are several reasons for it, and I'm going to suggest three. I think there's more I could say, but my time is limited. First of all, many scholars see in the conferring of this new name of Rock upon Simon a reference to the rock of foundation that the Jews were familiar with in their own temple. If you read the passages in 2 Samuel 24 and in 1 Chronicles 21 where the plague that is decimating the population of Jerusalem is averted by David purchasing a very, very significant threshing floor, a huge stone slab from a man named Around the Jebusite and erecting an altar upon it and averting the plague and seeing a vision of the angel of death stopping and recognizing the efficacy of that sacrifice on that particular site. And you read the subsequent narrative where David says to Solomon, this is where the temple must be built. I can't build it. God has told me that. But you're going to build it and you're going to build it on this rock. And the Ark of the Covenant stands upon that rock in the Holy of Holies, and the temple is built on top of it. The Jews call that rock the Evan Shethiyeh, the rock of foundation, the foundation stone. And I don't have the time tonight, but it's interesting that if you want to start there, where you see there's an actual literal rock, and you move backwards, you can find a whole series of episodes in Scripture where this rock shows up in, in earlier events when David is bringing the ark back from the Philistines and it crosses this threshing floor, the ark trembles. The oxen stumble. Why? There's something significant about this site. When you go back further, you see that this threshing floor shows up again and again. It's a place where Joseph mysteriously stops and mourns for seven days when he's bringing his father Jacob to be buried back in Palestine in Genesis 50. And then he continues on his path. Why? It's a place where Jacob stops and at this stone has a vision of God and a, a, a huge staircase going to heaven with the angels of God ascending and descending. Now, the Jews argued on the basis of poetic passages in Scripture. And we don't want to build too much upon this since they are admittedly poetic passages and may not be intended to be taken too literally. The Jews pointed out that there is a reference to a stone upon which the, uh, the world itself was built. It is the foundation, not just for the temple in Solomon's day, but it is the holy place where God built the world, and indeed the first temple. The temple where Adam and Eve, the sanctuary in the Garden of Eden, where they worshipped God. 
And this rock has a very interesting foundational significance in Scripture. And according to the Psalms, which say that the holy light of God's Shekinah, his glory, comes streaming forth from this rock on top of Zion, the Jews argued in their traditions, and this is only a tradition, it's nothing explicitly taught by Scripture, so again, we don't want to build any argument on it, but I'm pointing it out as a possible background, possible background in the mind of Jesus, that when God said, let there be light, that the light burst forth first from this foundation stone. And therefore, some scholars, including many Protestants, as a matter of fact, all the scholars I've read who argue this are Protestant or Jewish. I've, I've not yet encountered a Catholic who's, who's willing to, um, uh, to see this or is aware of these kinds of connections. They argue that one reason why Jesus might say, you are the rock, is because Again, as this darkness came bursting forth from the lips of the apostles, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah. Well, none of those things are true. When this beam of light, the light of God's revealed truth, comes leaping from the lips of Peter, Peter, as it were, is identifying himself, or God the Father in heaven is identifying him as the rock from which the light streams forth. And therefore, Jesus gets excited about this and says, as my Father built the, the temple, as David built the temple over this rock, so I, the son of David, will now build my temple, my church, over this new rock. And just as that stone is seen in the Psalms as holding the powers of darkness, the waters of Sheol at bay, so you, Peter, will exercise that function as well. That's one possible connection, but I wouldn't want to base an argument on it. There's something else that I think is clearer, and that is that it's very interesting that God himself uses this foundation stone imagery in the Old Testament and applies it to Abraham. He says in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, Look to the rock upon which you were built. Look to Abraham, your father, he says to Israel. Now Abraham, interestingly enough, is the first man and the most significant man in the Old Testament to have his name changed from Abram to Abraham. Because God says, you're going to be a father, a father of a multitude, which is what Abraham means. And that name change is very significant. And Abraham becomes the patriarch, the father upon which God builds out of Abraham's loins, out of living flesh, builds the temple of Israel, the living temple of God's covenant people. It's also interesting that Simon is the first person and the most significant person whose name is changed again by God Almighty himself here in the incarnate second person of the Trinity from Simon to Rock in this passage, you see. The first person, so there's a kind of parallelism here. In other words, Jesus may be saying, Peter, you will fulfill the same function in the new covenant Israel in the church, the Israel of God, as Paul says in Galatians 6, that Abraham did in the old. You will be the father, a father figure, a patriarchal figure for the new covenant people of God. There's a third reason, and that is that this whole interchange is occurring in a very significant site. Matthew draws our attention to it by saying that it's Caesarea Philippi. It used to be called Panius up until just prior to this episode. It was called that because it was the site of a shrine dedicated to the Greek god Pan and many other ancient gods as well. And it became the shrine, the site of a new cult to a new god. Emperor worship was on the rise. And to curry favor with the Roman ruler, Herod Philip built on atop a huge cliff of rock 
200 feet high, 500 feet wide, overlooking this very site where the conversation is taking place. He built a temple to Caesar as to God. And he renamed the town Caesarea Philippi, the town devoted, dedicated to Caesar by me, Philip. And Jesus is as much as saying, look, who is the real incarnation of God in the world? Is it Caesar or is it I? And therefore, which is the real temple? Is it that building or is it the church that I will build? And therefore, which is the real foundation stone? Is it this cliff or is it you, Simon? Because God has given you this insight and will work through you in this way. That's another reason why I think Jesus gives them the rock, because he's punning upon their setting and saying, look, this isn't where it's at. This isn't reality. This is reality. The gospel, the Christian faith. I am the real emperor, the real king. This is the real temple, and you are the real rock. Now we move on in chapter 18, in verse 18, excuse me, from this priestly language, this language of rock and foundation and sanctuary, to kingly language in verse 19. I will give you, Jesus said, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, so that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this language obviously comes from Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22 is a very interesting passage, and it starts in verse 20, the verses I want to look at, Isaiah 22, starting in verse 20, because it gives us the singular privilege of eavesdropping on the inauguration ceremony of a very important officer in ancient Israel the prime minister, or the grand vizier, or the major domo, or the king's chamberlain, whatever term you want to use, the Hebrews use the term chief steward. Of all the stewards or ministers that the king had, he had a prime minister, a chief steward. And this was a person of incredible power, as, say, the prime minister in England is as well. The, the, the monarch uh, has entrusted so much power to it that many people have asked, who's the ruler of England, will say, well, I guess it was Margaret Thatcher. She's just the prime minister of all the ministers. But there's a primacy of ministry that she has. The Davidic kings had the same. And what we hear in Isaiah 22, starting in verse 20, is that God gives through his inspired prophet, uh, Isaiah, an oracle, that one of these guys was on the way out and God was going to induct into office a, a more faithful man. And the language of the inauguration ceremony is cited here by God himself. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. Notice this language of vestments and investiture and authority, power being handed over. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Notice he's, a, he's spoken of in patriarchal, in paternal, in fatherly terms. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David, so that what he shuts no one can open, and what he opens no one can shut. He has the master key that supersedes all lesser keys. The same language Jesus used, of course, in Matthew 16, 19. And then he goes on to say that he will have a, a seat of honor for the house of his father and all the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots. Here we have one of the most important points, and that is that just as the Davidic king exercised his kingship through dynastic succession, so the office of prime minister was likewise here going to be transmitted from father to son, one of dynastic succession. This is a very important principle uh, in, in biblical 
uh, in the biblical concept of government. And Jesus draws upon this and applies this whole thing to Peter. He says, look, Peter, I am the Davidic king. My church is the house of David, the kingdom of God. And I need a prime minister, just as the Davidic kings before me did. And you are going to be that prime minister. So I turn the keys over to you, as the Davidic king did to his prime minister. The keys which represent authority to act as my representative and to govern the church in my name. Now, there's more I'd love to say about this passage, uh, but I'm simply going to move on here. How much time do I have left, sir? Three minutes. Thank you. Uh, Let me move on because some people say, gee, everything stands or falls with that passage. It does not. The Catholic faith does not pin its its, uh, teaching on the primacy of Peter on that passage alone. There are many other ones. Let me just mention a few other ones. One would be Luke 22, starting in verse 31. Actually, if you look up at verse 28 and 29, Jesus says to his apostles, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and so I confer on you a kingdom. This theme of suffering leading to reigning is pervasive throughout Scripture. And he says to his apostles, I confer on you a kingdom as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. So we're talking about government here. We're talking about authority. We're talking about thrones of authority. And then he says, Simon, Simon, in verse 31, Satan has asked to sift you, plural, as wheat. You, apostles. Satan wants to get his mitts on you. But I have prayed for you. And here in the Greek, the you is singular. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Of course, Jesus prayed for all his people, including all his apostles. But what he's highlighting here is that there is a strategic role that Simon would play with reference to the apostles as a whole. He is, as it were, a kind of a spine. He is a source of strength, Jesus says in verse 32, to his brothers. Jesus preserves and protects them all from Satan by upholding Peter. Peter has a foundational role to play. We see the same thing in John 21. Whereas the good shepherd, which Jesus identifies himself as in the uh, Gospel of John in chapter 10, is about to go back to heaven, he entrusts the care of his flock to Simon Peter when he asks him three times, do you love me more than these? Then, and Simon says, you know I do. Then feed my lambs, uh, tend my sheep, take care of my flock. All throughout Scripture, when a prophet is called or someone is invested with authority, they're inaugurated into office, there's this, often this threefold pattern in what we call a call narrative. And so there is here. Certainly to balance out and to cancel out Peter's threefold denial, but also to impress upon us the solemnity of this occasion. He entrusts the flock to Peter to act as his earthly representative to be a shepherd because the good shepherd is going back to heaven. Now, if this is true, if Jesus is indeed conferring a primacy on Peter, you would expect to see evidence of this elsewhere in the New Testament. And that is exactly what you find. Every time the apostles are listed in all four Gospels, in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts chapter 1, Peter is always placed first, even though he wasn't chronologically the first Gospel, the first person selected. And he is given a special title. It says, First Peter. Matthew says, and he uses a Greek word that can have a double entendre there. There's a firstness, there's a primacy to Peter. As a matter of fact, his name of Peter or rock is always given. Peter is named 195 times in the New Testament, and the second closest runner-up is John at a whopping 29. Over and over again, in every episode, we see Peter frequently acting as a representative of the apostles, and 
speaking on behalf of them all and Jesus addressing the twelve uh, by addressing Peter. It often says Peter and those that were with him. Peter and the rest of the twelve. Jesus singles Peter out for special privileges over and over again, whether it's the one coin to pay the temple tax for the two of them, or the walking on the water, or uh, selecting Peter's boat, which I think has symbolic significance, to preach from, and then the miraculous catch of fish. Uh, the same thing happens in John 21. All throughout the book of Acts, Peter is the one that says in Acts chapter 1, look, Judas is gone, we have to appoint a successor. There's no argument. There's, there's no big uh, case made for it. It's assumed there will be apostolic succession. I guess I've got to stop, so I'll simply stop there and uh, continue in my debate in my uh, rebuttal period. I thought I was going to get a two-minute warning. Okay. <laughs> And now we will hear the opening statement of Mr. James White. It is good to be with you again this evening uh, as we now address the issue of the Roman Catholic teaching in regards to the person of Peter and the concept of the papacy. I would like to uh, expand a little bit on what Mr. Matatix has said and help you to understand more fully uh, exactly what the Roman Catholic Church teaches in regard to Peter and the papacy. Uh, for example, from Vatican I, the first Vatican Council, we read, We therefore, for the preservation, safekeeping, and increase of the Catholic flock with the approval of this sacred council, do judge it to be necessary to propose to the belief and acceptance of all the faithful in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, the doctrine touching the institution, perpetuity, and nature of the sacred apostolic primacy. And what did they teach? I hope you will allow me a few moments to read you that which was taught. We therefore teach and declare that, according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to blessed Peter, the apostle, by Christ the Lord. For it was to Simon alone, to whom he had already said, Thou shalt be called Cephas, that the Lord, after the confession made by him, saying, and then we have the quotation of the passage that Jerry just read to us from Matthew chapter 16. And it was upon Simon alone that Jesus, after his resurrection, bestowed the jurisdiction of chief pastor and ruler over all his fold in the words, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. At open variance with this clear doctrine of Holy Scripture, it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church are the perverse opinions of those who, while they distort the form of government established by Christ the Lord in his church, deny that Peter, in his single person, preferably to all other apostles, whether taken separately or together, was endowed by Christ with a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction, or of those who assert that the same primacy was not bestowed immediately and directly upon blessed Peter himself, but upon the church, and through the church on Peter her minister. If any one, therefore, shall say that blessed Peter the apostle was not appointed the prince of all the apostles and the visible head of the whole church militant, or that the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ a primacy of honor only, and not of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be anathema. And so as we examine the Roman Catholic position, let us recognize that it remains the same today. Vatican II, in the section of the Church, chapter 3, section 18, very clearly reiterated this very same teaching. 
So we are being told that the Catholic Church has always understood Peter to have, have had a primacy amongst the apostles. But this primacy is seen most clearly in the main passage that Jerry spent his time on, Matthew chapter 16, specifically verses 17 through 19, where we are told the rock upon which the church is based is the person of Peter. Christ in this passage not only confers a primacy upon Peter, but upon the successors of Peter as well. Therefore, in this passage, we are being told that Christ institutes an office, which we know today as the papacy. Therefore, I'd like to make this statement. It is incumbent upon the defender of Roman Catholicism to demonstrate beyond question or infallibly, for the church claims to be infallible and claims absolute and complete trust in its statements regarding this issue, that one, Jesus is without question speaking to Peter in speaking about the rock in Matthew chapter 16. Secondly, that the words of the Lord Jesus speak without question in establishing Peter as the prince of the apostles, the very first pope, the head of the Christian church. And third, that these words of Jesus necessarily indicate the creation of an office of pope replete with successors and the attendant powers. Now let us examine the Roman Catholic position. Primary, in my thinking, of course, will be an examination of Matthew chapter 16 because my opponent has spent the most of his time dealing with that. And of course, even given the dogmatic statements of the church in Vatican I, it is directly said that this is the interpretation of this passage. And the Roman Catholic is bound to that. But before we look at Matthew 16 or John chapter 21, I need to ask the question, does the New Testament as a whole lead us to believe that Peter was considered to be the head of the church? Was Peter viewed as the vicar of Christ on earth? Was he ever called the Holy Father? Well, someone might say, oh, those are titles that evolved at a later time. But what was the perspective of the early church in regards to Peter? Obviously, we have to ask this question, because if Peter was actually given a primacy in Matthew chapter 16, then clearly we would see evidence of this throughout the New Testament. Do we find such evidence? I submit to you that we do not find a scintilla of evidence that Jesus gave this type of primacy to Peter or that anyone in the New Testament church believed that he had. Turn with me, for example, to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. In this passage, written by the Apostle Peter, you notice who he is uh, addressing. He says, Therefore I exalt the, exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness. Here Peter describes himself as a fellow elder. The Greek term is presbyteros, a term that was used on equal basis in the early church with the concept of the bishop, the bishop and the presbyter in the early church were the same offices, along with all other elders, and he calls them his fellow elders. In talking to his fellow elders, that is, his equals, he calls them to shepherd the flock of God. There is no indication whatsoever in this passage that Peter views himself as the shepherd of the flock, telling less shepherds or other shepherds to shepherd with his authority. There is no indication of this whatsoever. 
he gives no hint of any supposed supremacy. Also, in Acts chapter 15, in the Great Jerusalem Council, if you turn with me in your Bibles there, please, and I would encourage you to jot down the passages that are mentioned both by Jerry and myself this evening, so that you'd have an opportunity of examining them at a later time, because there is so little time in our, in our discussion tonight to look at all of them. But in Acts chapter 15, you have the Great Jerusalem Council, where the issue of the Gentiles is brought before the church and what must the Gentiles do, if anything at all, in regards to being in the church. And there was the problem of the Jews and the, the moral problem of the Gentiles and all these things are brought before the council. James is there. Peter is there. Paul is there. But there is no indication whatsoever in the text that Peter rules over this council or that Peter acts as a pope in this council. Instead, in verse 13, you will notice, it is James who answers after the, the material has been presented, after people have spoken. And verse 19, it is James who gives his judgment. Notice, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles and that we write the letter that was sent to the churches. There is no indication whatsoever that Paul or James view Peter as the vicar of Christ, the Holy Father, the head of the Christian church in this passage. In Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 13, Peter is sent along with John by the apostles to investigate the situation in Samaria. Again, the equality of the apostles is clearly seen in this passage as well. In short, there is nothing at all from the pen of Peter or the mouth of Peter that suggests that he viewed himself either as the rock upon which the church was founded or as the head of Christ's church on earth. There are other New Testament references to Peter. Peter is certainly, as Mr. Mattox pointed out, heard from a tremendous amount of times in the Gospels. He speaks more often than the other apostles in the Gospels. But to jump from this to a concept of primacy and from that to a concept of an office centered upon Peter for all time is beyond, in my opinion, credibility. Peter was spokesman. He was an impetuous spokesman. He was normally the one who spoke up first. But that hardly makes him a pope. If you look, for example, at Luke chapter 9, verse 33, an incident that takes place immediately after Matthew chapter 16's recording of the encounter in Caesarea Philippi, there at the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ, when the Father appears and the Son is transfigured and all these things are going on in the mountain, Peter speaks up first again. He's the first one to make a statement. What does Luke tell us in Luke 9:33? For Peter didn't know what he was saying. He just had to say something, so he said something. It made no sense. Uh, obviously, it must have been embarrassing to him in later years, but he was an impetuous person, and he spoke up freely. Does that make him a pope? No, it certainly does not. Peter took the lead in the Jerusalem church in the early days as well. No one in any way, shape, or form denies this is the case. It was through his instrumentality that the gospel was first preached to Jews and Gentiles alike. But aside from these truths, which no one disputes, there is no New Testament evidence whatsoever that anyone in the church felt that Peter was superior to any other apostle or elder, let alone any evidence that Peter was understood to be the head of the church, the vicar of Christ, or the Holy Father. Paul testifies, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, he says, In nothing was I less than the very chiefest apostles. And I have to ask you, if Paul had believed that Peter had a primacy or that he was the head of the church, would he have withstood Peter to the face in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and following, 
when Peter himself, by his actions, compromised the very core of the gospel itself. Peter's actions compromised the gospel, and Paul withstood him. There is nothing in that passage that would lead anyone to believe that Paul viewed Peter as the head of the church, as the vicar of Christ on earth. Would Paul have spoken this way to the vicar of Christ on earth? No, Christ admits you that Paul and Peter both knew who the true vicar of Christ on earth is, and that, my friends, is the Holy Spirit of God. Now, it is alleged by the Roman Catholic physician that Peter was the bishop of Rome and that he was in Rome at his death. Now, the Bible gives very little evidence that Peter was in Rome. Early tradition strongly supports his presence there, but how long he was there cannot be determined from tradition alone. If Peter were in Rome, we can tell it certainly was not for a long period of time. In fact, it is highly unlikely that Peter ever functioned as the Bishop of Rome there for any lengthy period of time at all. When Paul wrote to the Romans somewhere between 55 and 57 AD, it is evident that Peter was not in Rome from the greetings that he sends. Paul's prison epistles from Rome never mention the presence of Peter. In fact, in one place, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, I believe they make it very clear that either he was not there or he had abandoned Paul. If you look at 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul says that at his first defense, no one stood with me. A devastating charge against Peter if, in fact, he had been in Rome at this time, for Paul asks right afterwards that the Lord not hold it against them. Peter further testified that, I'm sorry, Paul further testified that Peter was called to be the apostle to the circumcision in contrast with his own call to the uncircumcision in Galatians chapter 2. Now, was this just a temporary feeling on the part of Peter and Paul? Did it change over time? Or did Peter continue his ministry to the circumcision, for example, by going to Babylon itself, as he records in 1 Peter 5.13? So when we come and examine Matthew chapter 16, we have to recognize the fact that the interpretation that has been, I believe, forced upon this text by the Roman Catholic Church in modern times is without support in the rest of the New Testament. The New Testament apostles, the rest of the writings, simply do not view Peter as the head of the Christian church. Now, in looking at Matthew chapter 16, I ask you to turn there with me now. Let us make a few quick comments on this passage as well. Matthew chapter 16. Looking at primarily verses 17 through 19, we note in the immediate context, as Mr. Matitix brought out, that this statement of faith on the part of Peter, where he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, is due to a revelation that is given to Peter. Peter himself is the passive recipient of this revelation of God. And it is a revelation of grace. It is a revelation of grace. But I point out to you that anyone who recognizes in a true, heartfelt fashion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, only knows that by a revelation. Only. Today, back then, makes no difference. And I point out to you that Peter was not the first one to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John chapter, two, John chapter 1, verse 49 says, Nathaniel recognized that Jesus was the Son of God long before Peter made this confession. Now, Jesus does address Peter personally, as Mr. Matitix pointed out. The pronoun, as in you are Peter, is singular. But I point out in passing, and we will look at this more in depth in just a moment, that in the Greek language, 
And of course, we'll address also in a moment the discussion of whether this was written in Aramaic or Greek or things like this. In the Greek language, the terms Peter and rock are in different forms, Petros, Petra. Jesus, I believe, is speaking to Peter about the rock. This rock in the passage is not direct address as saying, you are Peter. It is not a direct address in addressing the rock himself, as can be seen by the demonstrative pronoun talte, if any of you happen to be carrying your Greek text with you this evening as well. Christ is the one in this passage who builds the church. His headship is never compromised, as he goes on to say. I will build my church. It will be a permanent establishment. The gates of Hades shall not stop the church of Christ. Now, there have been many interpretations of the rock in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Many interpretations. One of the interpretations is that the rock is the faith that Peter had confessed in Christ. This view has been taken by a large number of interpreters, including such notable early church fathers as Augustine and John Chrysostom. Augustine said, for as regards his, prop, his proper personality, he was by nature one man, by grace one Christian, by still more abounding grace, one and yet also the first apostle. But when it was said to him, and then the quotation of Matthew 16, 19, he represented the universal church, which in this world is shaken by diverse temptations that come upon it like torrents of rain, floods and tempests and falleth not, because it is founded upon a rock from which Peter received his name. For Petra, rock, is not derived from Peter, but Peter from Petra, just as Christ is not called so from the Christian, but the Christian from Christ. For on this very account, the Lord said, on this rock, I will build my church because Peter had said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. On this rock, therefore, he said, which thou hast confessed, I will build my church. For the rock, Petra, is Christ. And on this foundation was Peter himself built. For other foundation can no man lay than what is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And John Chrysostom also added, therefore, he added this. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter. And upon this rock will I build my church. That is on the faith of his confession and elsewhere he said for Christ added nothing more to Peter but as though his faith were perfect said that upon this confession of his he would build the church and so there have been many of those who have taken the perspective that the rock is the faith that Peter had confessed in Christ in fact the Jesuit scholar Maldonatus wrote that there are among ancient authors some who interpret this rock that is on this faith or on this confession of faith in which thou hast called me the son of the living God Hilary, Gregory of Nyssa, Chrysostom and Cyril of Alexandria another perspective is that Christ is the rock himself drawing this view especially from biblical New Testament usage of the term even Peter himself frequently refers to Christ as the rock though he never refers to himself as the rock Augustine, in his retractations, mentions, quote, having sometimes adopted the language which St. Ambrose had used in a hymn and which designates Peter as the rock of the church. But most frequently, he goes on to say, he had interpreted the passage of Christ himself, led by the text, that rock was Christ and other foundation can no man lay. In that passage, Augustine leaves his readers at liberty to choose, but his mature judgment evidently inclines to the latter interpretation. Dr. Furlick has said the most astonishing fact is that in the entire Middle Ages, in contrast to the polemical literature of the period, specifically exegetical literature universally made the equation rock equals Christ, not rock equals Peter. The Venerable Bede also wrote that upon this rock meant upon the Lord as well. 
And a third interpretation is the rock was Peter himself. The French Roman Catholic Lenoy listed 17 patristic testimonies that Peter was the rock, 44 that list Peter's faith as the rock. That the rock was Christ himself is supported by 16 and all the apostles together being the rock supported by 8. Cyprian, the great early church father from North Africa, identified Peter as the rock, but as we shall see, Cyprian did not in any way believe that this indicated that the bishop of Rome had primacy in the church. And this is very important for us to grasp. For as Mr. Matatix very rightly pointed out, there are two aspects of the Roman Catholic claim. One, that Peter is the rock upon which Christ builds the church, and that it necessarily follows from this that Peter has successors and that these successors have primacy in the church. Here you have Cyprian who believes that Peter is the rock, but he does not in any way, shape, or form believe that there is one bishop above all other bishops, that there is one who has the supremacy in the church, as Vatican I would tell us if we don't believe that, if we reject that, that we are anathema. William Cathcart wrote, the same view of the scripture was taken by other leading fathers of the church, that is, in regards to the faith being the rock, and outside of Rome, for the first five centuries of our era, no Christian father of any note dreamt that this saying gave Peter the sovereignty of the church. Now, it may be mentioned, and in previous debates on this issue, Mr. Matatix has brought up the issue, that there are Protestants who interpret Matthew chapter 16 to mean Peter as the rock. For example, Dr. William Hendrickson uh, takes this perspective. But we must point out that they are very quick to reject any papal pretensions that are placed upon this passage. Dr. Hendrickson, in his commentary on Matthew, beginning at page 645, presented three views that he said must be rejected and one view that is to be appreciated, and one that he takes himself. The second view that he presented that must be rejected is that, quote, this passage proves that Peter was the first pope. He then quoted Cardinal Gibbons, The Faith of Our Fathers, which states, the Catholic Church teaches that our Lord conferred on St. Peter the first place of honor and jurisdiction in the government of his whole church, and that same spiritual authority has always resided in the popes or bishops of Rome as being the successors of St. Peter. Consequently, to be true followers of Christ, all Christians, both among the clergy and laity, must be in communion with the See of Rome, where Peter rules in the person of his successor. Dr. Hendrickson's response to this claim is, quote, The passage does not support any such bestowal of well-nigh absolute authority on a mere man or on his successors, end quote. These Protestant interpreters who accept that Peter is here called rock are clear in denying the Roman interpretation of the passage by insisting that this passage must be taken historically. Dr. Coleman in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament follows other Protestants in saying that Peter is this, of course, only and not otherwise than as the Simon whom Christ has taken in hand, that is, the elected Peter. They emphasize, as Dr. Frederick Dale Bruner writes, the uniqueness, the historical once-for-allness of Peter's commission as rock. The text does not say, on this rock and on his successors, I will build my church. Solus Petrus. To take this text literally is to honor Peter only. Peter was given first place by Jesus as the one who first confessed Jesus Christ, the divine son. And so Peter is made the first rock of the church. For the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. These Protestants' identification of Peter as the rock is of little assistance to the Roman position, for the fulfillment of Peter's commission as they see it is directly contradictory to the Roman Catholic concept, because they see Peter using the keys of verse 19, 
in a solely declaratory manner. That is, he is the one who preached the gospel, opened the kingdom of God to Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, in the brief few minutes that I have left, I had 22 pages of notes this evening, and I'm not going to get to very many of them in the opening statement, but in the few moments I have left, I want to address your attention to the position taken by Mr. Meditix and other modern defenders of the Roman Catholic concept of papacy in regards to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. It was read in your hearing. A good deal of the background was presented, the passage, but amazingly enough to me, and I have yet to hear a Roman Catholic apologist use this passage and give you the full story about it. Why is that? Well, we look at Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and we see verse 22, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And Mr. Matitix tells us, this is the language from which the Lord Jesus is drawing in Matthew chapter 16. In fact, Mr. Matitix specifically said, Jesus draws on this and applies it to Peter. I don't believe so. If you have a cross-reference Bible, you may look at verse 22. And if you look over in your column, one of the first references you'll see is Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Could we turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7? And read Revelation 3, 7? Let me read it in your hearing. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who I believe all of us in this room tonight most probably would accept as the infallible interpreter of Scripture. And to the angel of church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. That is a direct quotation of Isaiah chapter 22. Word for word. And who is the one who has the key, singular, of David? Is it the Pope? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the one who opens and no one will shut? Is it the Pope? No, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the one who shuts and no one's open? Is it the Pope? No, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would point out to you that in Jesus describing himself, he takes Isaiah 22 and he interprets that prophecy of himself. And he says here... And it would be interesting to note, since Mr. Matitix is doing his doctoral dissertation in the book of Revelation when he dates this, but most scholars date this well after Peter's death. And the Lord Jesus says he is the one who has the key of David. The fulfillment of Isaiah 22 cannot in any way be taken to be in a pope or in the papacy. Isaiah 22 is about the personal Lord Jesus Christ in its prophetic fulfillment. Thank you very much. Could you give me a two-minute and a one-minute warning? I'll give you a two-minute warning. Okay. I'm glad that uh, Mr. White says we need to look carefully at Matthew 16 because I think that is a significant passage, although I want to reiterate it is not the only passage. I want to take exception with some of the statements he made. I think he presented a very fluent, very... Uh, uh, masterful presentation, but there were was, there was some problems, some flaws in it, and I think some, some actually ultimately fatal flaws in it. First of all, it is not the case, it is not the case that Nathaniel made in John chapter 1 the same confession that Peter makes in Matthew 16. We need to interpret scripture very carefully with precision. I think every word counts. What Nathaniel says is, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So there's a reference there to his kingship. 
And there's a reference there to the king as the son of God. But I think Peter's confession is a richer one, a more three-dimensional one, because he says, you are the Christ. And Christ involves the idea of prophet, priest, and king. And we see this threefold response on the part of Jesus. Regardless of what you think about that, if Nathaniel did even come up, for the sake of argument, with the exact same confession, this exactly proves my point. Jesus is not saying to Nathaniel, I'm going to give you a special office. It's not a question of Peter having some extra uh, spirituality or some extra qualification for the office. We have an exercise of sovereign grace here on the part of our Lord. The point is this. Jesus never says to Nathaniel, I will give you the keys. He never says what you bind will be bound. What you loose will be loosed. Another point I want to make about this Matthew 16 passage is about this whole Petros, Petra controversy. Uh, Mr. White alluded to the fact that there is disagreement among biblical scholars as to whether the distinction between Petros and Petra is at all germane to the issue, to the reading of the passage. First of all, it is virtually certain that Jesus and the apostles as Palestinian Jews did not walk around speaking Greek in their day-to-day conversations. The, The conversation occurred in Aramaic. And every biblical scholar who specializes in the Aramaisms, the, the, uh, the idioms that were originally, that obviously show an Aramaic thumbprint upon them, Matthew Black and others, point out the enormous presence of Aramaisms in Matthew 16. In other words, there are phrases here like flesh and blood and binding and loosing, which are not native to the Greek language. The world-renowned scholars like Joachim Jeremias and Oscar Kuhlmann who have made this passage, and these are Protestants that I'm referring to, their special province of study have said no one can deny that what we have underlying the Greek text that we study, an Aramaic original, no one is able to muster an argument against that. The evidence is overwhelming for that. In Aramaic, there is one word for rock, not two, a masculine and feminine, it is kepha, which you have transliterated throughout the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts and throughout Paul's epistles as Cephas. It's interesting, by the way, that Paul refers to Simon as Kepha, as rock. He doesn't call him Simon. Why? You have to ask yourself, does Paul refer to Simon as rock over and over and over? Why is that his characteristic way of referring to him if Simon's not a rock? Jesus said, you are Kepha, rock, and on this Kepha, I will build my church. Every single testimony that Mr. White is dependent upon for the apostolic authorship of the Gospel of Matthew. In other words, the Gospel itself doesn't say this is written by Matthew an apostle. In the document itself, it's anonymous. You are dependent for your belief in the apostolic authorship of this Gospel upon the testimony of the early church. They tell us who wrote these books. And every single person who says that Matthew wrote the gospel, if they talk at all about, if they go at all into detail about the circumstances of the writing, tell us that Matthew wrote it originally in Aramaic. Some of them use the word Hebrew, which probably, as it did generally in the first century, refers to Aramaic, this cousin uh, language that's almost dialect of of classical um, uh, pre-exilic Hebrew. And so... 
the evidence is overwhelming that the passage uh, was originally written in Aramaic, and certainly the conversation behind it was, and there's no attempt to make a distinction of two rocks there. Even in the Greek, you don't have an adequate argument that Jesus is saying there are two rocks. You're Petros. You see, this is what the reformers used to like to attempt back in the 1500s when our knowledge of Greek was really not as, as developed and sophisticated as it is today. They would say Petros, from our lexical study, probably means a smaller, movable stone, while Petra always means a huge, immovable, rocky cliff. And so Jesus is saying, you're a movable stone, Simon, but on this rock, something else, either the confession or me, myself, I will build my church. The problem is, Greek can no longer support that distinction. It's an utterly fallacious argument. And I find it incredulous that a Protestant today would want to use this when every major Protestant commentator, Bible, Bible scholar, um, lexicographer, person who writes Greek dictionaries, admits that Petros and Petra can no longer be used to distinguish larger from smaller rocks. They're interchangeable. You can pull down off the shelf the volume of the largest Greek dictionary that exists, Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And you can read the articles on Petros and Petra, and Kuhlmann will say they're interchangeable. The fact that Petra cannot be some huge immovable rock, if, if Mr. White wants to claim that there's this distinction, is refuted by the Bible itself. When Paul speaks of the rock that followed the Jews in the wilderness, a movable rock, and says, and the rock was Christ, and uses the word Petra for it. So this whole old argument that Calvin and Luther used, that Jesus is contrasting an immovable Petra with a movable Petrus, just doesn't wash. It's no longer honest argumentation. Why is there a difference when the, trans, when the gospel was finally translated into Greek? Because Petra, the word used to describe this rock on this site, and, and the general word for large rock, is a feminine noun. And it would have been socially inappropriate for God, for Jesus to take a feminine noun and give it to a man as a new name. He had to change it and give it a masculine singular ending. And there is no evidence that it was a proper name for anybody prior to this time. Jesus invents, as it were, invents, as it were the word Petros as a name and says, Simon, I will give you the name of Rock. But keep in mind that Jesus is not speaking Greek. And Matthew, out of courtesy to Paul, to Peter, excuse me, as a man, gives him the masculine singular form. Now, it is true that some early church fathers, and they are not the majority, if you've been given that impression, did think that Peter was not the rock that Jesus said he would build his church on. Augustine does say that in two places. But in a, many other places, he says that Peter is the rock. Chrysostom does say that, and a few other uh, fathers say it as well. But what's very interesting, however, is that although they felt that the proper exegesis of Matthew 16 said that Jesus was the rock, they did not use this interpretation to deny that Peter was the rock in other passages. Two minutes. Thank you. They did not say that Peter is therefore not someone with special privileges conferred upon him. It is insane to cite Augustine or Chrysostom or any of these other fathers that were mentioned as someone that 
might have agreed that, Jesus, that Peter wasn't the wrong man. They seemed to say, well, we reject the Roman Catholic understanding of the primacy of the Roman bishop. These people were Catholics who accepted the special rock-like status of the Bishop of Rome as the inheritor of the teaching authority and the jurisdictional authority of Peter. And there's no way to try to make them uh, sound like, uh, like proto-Protestants at that point. I read, as a Protestant years ago, a book which absolutely changed my way of looking at this whole issue. It's a book compiled by a Protestant. Documents Illustrating Papal Authority, A.D. 96 to 454, by Edward Giles, published by SPCK in London. What he has done is gone through all the primary source documents of the first five centuries. Every memorandum, every letter, every sermon, every count, conciliar statement, every statement of a pope that bears at all on this issue of whether Peter is the rock, and whether the bishops of Rome are his successors. And by the time I got to the end of this book, and, and I sat in and read the whole book, I remember the day vividly in a, in a Protestant library, from early in the morning until the time they had to kick me out of the library at midnight, I was overwhelmed with the avalanche of evidence, as I said before, that what you see, although fathers disagree slightly here and there on, on, uh, on some points, that the consensus builds to an enormous swell and that the vast majority of people recognize what the Catholic Church teaches today. So the statement that in the first five centuries you don't have people seeing a sovereignty for the Bishop of Rome is just not historically valid. Look into it yourself. Get a hold of this book in a library and read yourself the documents and you will see that in the first, by the end of the fifth century the evidence is overwhelming, the consensus is there. Thank you. Mr. White's rebuttal for 10 minutes. Grace, you take me two trips. I'd like to point out a number of things in regards to Mr. Matic's comments just now. I will not, however, use the, uh, I think, improper thing of saying, well, there's so many things I point out that Jerry didn't say anything about. Uh, that's just simply a time constraint. I don't feel it's right to say, well, hey, I think Jerry's dodging this, that, and everything. I hope he gets an opportunity to mention a number of the things that I said earlier. However, I just have to respond to some of the things that were said because Mr. Meditix seems to like such adjectives as no one. Certainly, there is no one who believes X, Y, and Z in regards to these things. For example, it was said that every single person agrees and every single scholar agrees and no argument can be marshaled to say that the uh, gospel of Matthew the underlying conversation was in Aramaic or that the gospel was originally in Aramaic and these things well I, I guess this guy never existed but his name was G.H. Shaw and he wrote in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia and he said this one thing which seems certain is that whatever this Hebrew or Aramaic document may have been referring to referring to the statement by Papias it was not an original uh, from which the present Greek of Matthew was translated, either by the apostle himself or by someone else. He is pointing out to these individuals that Jerry spoke of when he talked about some individuals, every single one who addressed the Gospel of Matthew in the early fathers and talked about how it was written, said it was written in uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. I would suggest that you look a little more deeply into that because that isn't the case. 
Indeed, he goes on to say, the Greek Matthew throughout bears the impress of being not a translation at all, but as having been originally written in Greek as being less Hebraistic in the form of thought than some other New Testament writings. It is generally not difficult to discover when a Greek book of this period is a translation of the Hebrew Aramaic. The article cites the fact that Matthew uses the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament rather than the Hebrew, indicating its originality in Greek, and those references are in the book Answers to Catholic Claims if you want to look at them. Now, Jerry then said that it is insane, and maybe I just, just didn't hear him say that, but I thought I heard him say it is insane to maintain that the early fathers who viewed Peter as the, as the rock or didn't view Peter as the rock, those who didn't view him as the rock, that these individuals did not accept the primacy of Peter and the Bishop of Rome. Well, I'm going to have to be insane because my research indicates just the opposite. In fact, since we're discussing books that you might want to look at, if you'd like to go to the library, I'd suggest you look up Dr. Salomon's work, The Infallibility of the Church. The Infallibility of the Church used to be published by Baker. I'd suggest you read through it as well. It does an excellent job in addressing these issues. But Cyprian of Carthage, Cyprian must have been one of the insane early church fathers who made this distinction. He was one of the most important early church fathers, and aside from disagreeing with modern Roman Catholic teachings on such issues as the operation of the sacraments, Cyprian's view of the church differed markedly from modern Roman doctrine on this issue. For our purposes, his view of the equality of bishops is most important. In the preface to the Seventh Council of Carthage, Cyprian wrote, and Cyprian died in 258, so he's not exactly way down the road someplace. For neither does any of us set himself up as a bishop of bishops, nor by tyrannical terror does any compel his colleagues the necessity of obedience, since every bishop, according to the allowance of his liberty and power, has his own proper right of judgment and can no more be judged by another than he himself can judge another. Cyprian also openly rebuked the bishop of Rome, Stephen, who meddled in the affairs of the African church in restoring the apostate Basilides to his post. Referring to this, Cyprian wrote, Neither can it rescind an ordination rightly perfected that Basilides, after the detection of his crimes and the bearing of his conscience, even by his own confession, went to Rome and deceived Stephen. Our colleague, not our superior, our colleague, placed at a distance and ignorant of what had been done and of the truth to canvass that he might be replaced unjustly in the episcopate from which he had been righteously deposed. The significance of this must be recognized. Here, Cyprian, one of the minority, and I believe it is clearly minority, of early fathers who saw Peter as the rock of Matthew 16, clearly did not believe that this gave any superiority or supremacy to the Bishop of Rome. He, like Dr. Hendrickson or Dr. Kuhlmann, did not find any reason to believe that Matthew 16 records the establishment of an office of supremacy in the Pope. I would also point out that the term Pope was used of men outside of Rome more than once. In fact, I personally am unaware, and I would be glad if Mr. Mattix would provide me references to this, of any use of the term Pope with reference to the Bishop of Rome in the first four centuries of the Christian era. Cyprian himself was addressed as Pope Cyprian in letters sent to him, interestingly enough, two times by the presbyters and deacons abiding at Rome. You would think that the Roman presbyters and deacons would know who the one pope was. Surely, if anyone knew that the term pope should not be used by anyone else, it would be these men. 
Dr. Cox has known that the term, quote, was originally given to all presbyters as implied in their name of elders and was a title of humility when it became peculiar to the bishops. He further commented with reference to Jesus' words in Matthew 23, call no man your father upon earth, thus interpreted, these words seem to be a warning against the sense in which this name, Papa or Pope, became long afterwards restricted in Western Europe. This was done by the decree of the ambitious Hildebrand, Gregory VII, who died in A.D. 1085, when in a synod held at Rome, he defined that, quote, the title Pope should be peculiar to one only in the Christian world. Further, Dr. Cox noted the fact that the most ancient tradition relevant to the term Papa continues in the East this very day. The patriarchs in the Eastern Church continue to be called popes despite Gregory VII's novel demand that only he have the name. Other early church documents again show that to claim what I am claiming is not insane. The apostolic canons, which are dated from the, either the early 3rd or the late 5th century, state, quote, the bishops of every country ought to know who is chief among them and to esteem him as their head and not to do anything without his consent, but everyone to manage only the affairs that belong to his own parish and the place is subject to it. But let him not do anything without the consent of all, for it is by, means, by this means there will be unanimity and God will be glorified by Christ in the Holy Spirit. The Council of Nicaea, one of the most important councils in the Christian church, an important council wherein the deity of Christ was defined and defended where the Bishop of Rome was not present, was represented by but two presbyters who had almost nominal dealings with the entire thing. Are we really to believe that this incredibly important council was not guided by the Vicar of Christ on earth? Well, I hardly think so. But Canon 6 of the Council of Nicaea reads as follows. Let the ancient customs in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis prevail that the Bishop of Alexandria have jurisdiction in all these, since the like is custom for the Bishop of Rome also. Likewise, in Antioch and the other provinces, let the churches retain their privileges. And this is to be universally understood that if anyone be made bishop without the consent of the Metropolitan, the Great Synod had declared that such a man ought not to be a bishop. So here you have Alexandria, Rome, Antioch, the patriarch of those churches was considered to have the authority in his area, but not an authority over the other areas. The Bishop of Rome is not seen here at this great council as being the vicar of Christ on earth, the head of the church. The Council of Chalcedon, 451, the 28th canon, gives us an insight into why the Roman bishop was seen as having any special authority by anyone. Let me quote a little bit of the section to you. It's fairly lengthy, but I'll try to keep it fairly short. Following in all things the decisions of the Holy Fathers and acknowledging the canon which has just been read of the 150 bishops beloved of God who assembled in the imperial city of Constantinople, which is New Rome in the time of the Emperor Theodosius of happy memory, we also do enact and decree the same things concerning the privileges of the most holy church of Constantinople, which is New Rome. Listen closely. For the Fathers rightly granted privileges to the throne of old Rome because it was the royal city. Because it was the royal city. Now, I point out to you that, for example, Jerome, as late as the beginning of the 5th century, wrote the following. Wherever a bishop may be, whether at Rome or at Eugebium, at Constantinople or at Regium, at Alexandria or at Tanis, he is of the same worth and of the same priesthood. The force of wealth and lowness of poverty do not render a bishop higher or lower, for all of them are the successors of the apostles. Listen to what he says. It would be like in our situation if we had a church, and I hope none of you are from the little city of Aho. If you are the bishop of Aho, 
you would not probably be as readily recognized in your position as the Bishop of Washington, D.C. But here Jerome says that does not change the fact that these bishops are equal with one another. If it is insane to assert that the early church fathers, even those who rejected Peter as being the rock, also did not believe and had no concept of a supremacy of the Roman bishop, then all of these facts must be called just that. They must be called insane. But they are facts nonetheless. Thank you very much. Seven. We want to take a break. And I'd like to call the meeting back in 13 minutes. So around 20 till, start finding your way back to your seats. In the second half, a representative of the City of the Lord community would like to make a brief announcement. When you leave tonight, we have two exits. We have an exit here, and then, of course, this exit over here to your left that the majority of people came in. So to keep that in mind, you can go out this way, and they'll take you directly out to the street. Then I want to mention that this is not a church. It's a Christian community, but it's a, it's a uh, privately owned Christian community of, of, of the people of Longford, such as myself. However, they are not sponsoring this debate. Catholic answer is. And the community here asked for their own protection that we uh, get some liability insurance to cover in case any accidents could happen. And this just makes sense because unfortunately we're in a society that we have too much of that. And, and so we, we have a bucket over there and one over here. And we're not asking much. But believe it or not, we had to pay $250 Catholic answers. Not, the, not the, uh, the, the owners of the building. $250 for insurance for this one-night stand. So if you feel led to it, uh, as you go out either way, we'll have a bucket there. And give what you can. Thank you very much. The only change in the format of the second half is that instead of the second rebuttal periods being five minutes apiece, both gentlemen have agreed to extend that to 10 minutes since we have a little bit more time to do that. So we're going to proceed now into the second half. Before I introduce the first rebuttant, whatever you call them, I want to announce that video and audio tapes of this evening's debate will be available through Alpha and Omega Ministries. So you are welcome to see the folks in the back corner, pick up their literature, and get the address or phone number to contact them if you're interested in procuring audio and or video tapes of the proceedings. To review briefly, the second rebuttal period will be 10 minutes apiece beginning with Mr. Matatix and then proceeding on to Mr. White, followed by a 20-minute cross-examination period beginning with Mr. White and ending with Mr. Matatix. Closing remarks will last 10 minutes apiece, beginning with Mr. Matatix and then closing with Mr. White. We now begin our second rebuttal period beginning with Mr. Matatix. It is you hear us rattling and roaring through our material how hard it is 
with such very complex scriptural and historical material to feel like we're doing a coherent job. And I want you to understand, too, that in one sense, and this was true of Mr. White last night, that my case tonight is harder than his. I'm not saying that for sympathy, but just for clarification. I'm the guy who's trying to build a case, as it were, and you all remember times when, in your childhood when you might take an hour building just the perfect castle with your building blocks and your little brother came along and could kick it down in 10 seconds. It's always a little bit easier, as it were, for the one person to kind of tear things down and you've got to stop and, and, and re-put them, put them back up. But nonetheless, let me try to put some of these blocks back up that I think have been unjustly knocked down, and I want to hit some of these issues just rather rapidly. First of all, the issue of the Aramaic original. I don't think it's a major issue tonight, but it's an issue that, that um, Mr. White has uh, contested, and so I, I want to make reference to it. The name of the uh, German scholar that Mr. White quoted is actually not uh, Shad, but Shadi, and uh, I, I am suggesting that to select him alone and to read him uh, might be considered by some uh, a little bit shoddy in terms of scholarship because the one article the one article that was cited is a turn of the century article in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia it's been reprinted since then but the whole understanding of Aramaic originals underlying the Gospels has really come about and mushroomed in this century the, the evidence wasn't even there the manuscript didn't even exist and with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other biblical manuscripts, we have a vaster insight into some of these things. I'm saying, look at the 20th century scholars who have established expertise in this area. Look at the works, or look at any selection. Go into an evangelical Protestant bookstore and pull down the commentary on Matthew by R.T. France, or the Anchor Bible volume by William F. Albright, or, or books by... Herman Ritterboss, one of the greatest Dutch scholars, or Donald A. Carson, a Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or Gerhard Meyer, a fundamentalist Lutheran minister, or Jean Carmignac, the author of The Birth of the Synoptic Gospels, which Catholic Answers does carry. Uh, look at the work of William Farmer and William Hendrickson, uh, Henry Alford, even most of the, the works of the last century, like Henry Alford's Greek New Testament and William Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible. Excuse me. Hastings uh, says in his Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, um, the common view that the rock is Jesus himself has scarcely any supporters among the interpreters of today. Most Protestant scholars agree with the Roman Catholic Church in understanding the rock to be Peter himself. Now, that doesn't prove Catholicism. And my point was not that all of these Protestant... It's not going to go anywhere, is it? Or it is going to go That... Protestant scholars are ready to sign up to join the Catholic Church, but we've got to take this, folks, one step at a time. It's too easy to get confused. My first point, very simply, is that the best, most responsible way of interpreting Matthew 16 is to see that Peter is the rock being spoken of and that he has a foundational role. And most Protestant scholars today, I said most, I didn't say everyone, of course there are people who, who will vehemently deny this, but most Protestant scholars today will admit this. The uh, citations from the fathers are highly selective, and I don't know really how we can help you on this. You're going to have to really sit down and read them for yourself. Um, Cyprian, for example, did dispute with Pope Stephen, the Bishop of Rome. And in that dispute, he took his classic treatise on the unity of the Catholic Church and wrote a revised version of it in which he downplayed 
and cut out all the compliments he had lavished upon the Bishop of Rome in his first edition. That's a matter of historical record. Nonetheless, Giles, a Protestant scholar, says this about Cyprian's work. To Cyprian, the rock is Peter, and our Lord builds his church on Peter. He says this so often that no one doubts that this is Cyprian's view. And I could read you, if I had the time, which I don't, dozens of quotations from Cyprian in numerous epistles. You can go into any library and read them for yourself. In numerous treatises where over and over again he says, Peter is the rock, God built his church upon Peter. So, so much for that. The same goes for the other um, uh, fathers which have been mentioned. Certainly you can find a quote here and a quote there, but I would recommend seeing that with something like Giles and reading the cumulative effect. Jerome, by the way, is not a good example either of someone who, uh, to, to cite as someone that's undermining this claim. Jerome said in a letter to Pope Damasus himself in 376, as I follow, uh, excuse me, um, it is to the, to the successor of the fisherman that I address myself, to the disciple of the cross, as I follow no leader save Christ, notice the logic here, so I communicate with, or in communion with, None save your beatitude, that is, with the chair of Peter. He doesn't say it's either or, since I acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, I therefore reject your authority, but the one is the basis of the other. Why? For this I know is the rock upon which Christ built the church. This is Noah's ark, and he who is not found in it shall perish when the flood overwhelms all. And there are many other statements of Jerome as well, indicating the, the primacy of the Roman bishop. So much for, therefore, Jerome. The councils likewise. No, the Pope wasn't at the Council of Nicaea. He sent legates. All of these early councils are all happening in the East. And he simply sent ad, uh, ambassadors or emissaries there. And it's interesting that even these Eastern fathers, Chrysostom and others, that would have no political reason to want to give uh, any inch to Rome, nonetheless acknowledge in these early church fathers' writings that Rome has this priority. And they don't base it on Rome's political being, uh, being the political capital of the empire. On the contrary, when you read letter, uh, Clement's first letter to the Corinthians, when you read Ignatius's letter to the Romans, when you read what Irenaeus has to say, and I hope I get a chance to here uh, momentarily, uh, and what Chrysostom and Jerome and others say, they say the reason Rome is special is because the two chief apostles, Peter and Paul, went there, they labored there, they established the church there, the church was the beneficiary of their preaching, they spilled their blood there, and thus, with, by that sacrifice, for Christ's sake, consecrated that church and made it special. And continue, as it were, to have a connection with that. I don't have time to get into the whole biblical theology of martyrdom, but they continue to exercise a kind of governing, a kind of supervision of the church there. And father after father says, for this reason, this church cannot be touched by error. This church is guaranteed because it was the beneficiary of so much grace-filled, inspired, spirit-filled and infallible preaching on the part of these two apostles. And over and over again, Rome is seen as that which puts its stamp of approval. All other churches, Irenaeus said in the second century, must agree with this church. From 140 to 220 AD, you had a flood of heretics going to Rome trying to get their particular false teaching ratified, knowing that if Rome somehow could be tricked into endorsing their teaching, then everyone would accept it as authoritative and apostolic. And of course, they were unsuccessful. And a book like Giles will show you that. Now, another issue, moving on from the whole idea of the rock, 
is the issue of the keys. And that has not been, I think, adequately addressed uh, by Mr. White. Uh, he has addressed it, but I'm saying not adequately. Because as I looked at uh, Isaiah 22, 22 and Revelation 3, 7, I, and, and um, Matthew 16, I, I ended up somewhat disagreeing with him that Revelation 3, 7 is a direct quote word for word. It is not. There are words in Isaiah 22 that are not in Revelation 3, 7 and vice versa. Uh, it is no more a direct quote than, than Matthew 16 is. But I don't want to split hairs. I think if you look at both passages, you see that both of them hearken back to Isaiah 22. Absolutely. That is the very point that I am trying to make. That Jesus Christ has the key of David. Why? Because he's the son of David. But what does the son of David do with those keys? He does what every Davidic king has done. He hands them to a prime minister. No one is denying that Jesus is the ultimate authority, the ultimate head of the church. The Catholic Church affirms that. So certainly he, he receives the key of David and holds it permanently because he is the Davidic king. And the Gospels uh, identify him as such. But he takes these keys, and notice here, by the way, it's plural, and, and you cannot get away from the fact that whatever you think about the rock, Jesus says in Matthew 16, I give you... Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What is Mr. White going to do with that verse? He can't say Jesus has it, Peter doesn't. Jesus said, I give them to you. And all of those keys imply. So I think when you go through the other passages that we looked at, I have other things that I want to um, ask him about, but I don't have much time left. I think you'll see that the authority of Peter is affirmed throughout uh, the New Testament. In the book of Acts, for example, he is the one, uh, as I pointed out before, who called this meeting and says, look, we have to appoint a successor uh, to fill Judas's place. Notice Peter's uh, view of apostolic succession. He doesn't uh, argue about it. He doesn't build a case. He says, we have to do this. And if Judas, a wicked apostle, receives a successor, how much more would Peter need to receive one as well? Thank you very much, Mr. Moderator. I have written down a number of things that in 10 minutes I have 11 things, so that shows you how fast I have to go. First of all, I must remind everyone that this debate is about the teaching, the Roman Catholic claim, that Peter is the first pope, he has successors, and there is a primacy in that office. The Catholic claims are absolute in that regard and therefore cannot be a matter of, well, we've got a 50-50 chance that our interpretation's right and you have to believe it because of that. It's not an infallible church cannot give you a, well, this seems to be the best interpretation. I know there are others and yes, a, a couple early church fathers has agreed with this, but hey, we've got the best possibility and you are supposed to believe us on the basis of that. If you're going to claim absolute authority, you have to have absolute certainty. I'd like to point out a few other things in passing. First of all, when I mentioned Nathaniel and his confession of Jesus as the Son of God, and that confession coming, we believe, as it's shown in Matthew chapter 16, from God the Father himself, I would also like to point out that previous to Peter, Simeon, way back when Jesus was but a lad taken to the temple, confessed that Jesus was the Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, I'd like to point out something else that Mr. Matatik said. He said over and over again, Peter is always the one who is listed first amongst the apostles. But in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, when the bishops or elders or pastors of the church in Jerusalem are mentioned, Peter is not mentioned first. 
he is not the first in the list. He is not given a quote-unquote position of primacy. Lest there be some calumny in my not addressing John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, let me very quickly do so. In John chapter 21, where Jesus instructs Peter to feed his sheep, Jesus is again the direct object of the Lord's attention, not because Peter has some an immediate primacy or assigned primacy that is supposed to be an office in the church, but because Peter is in need of restoral following his failure and denial of the Lord. Christ deals directly with any disciple, you or I, any disciple or follower, just as he does with Peter. Does this mean that each disciple who personally encounters Christ has primacy over other disciples? Certainly not. And Peter himself, when addressing the very issue of shepherding the flock in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-2, through 2, shows no indication whatsoever that his fellow elders do the shepherding of their flocks under his guidance, which is what Vatican I and the Roman Catholic Church teaches in regards to the papacy. Now, in reference to the subject of Aramaic and the whole issue of the modern Aramaic view and everything else, Mr. Matix has said, well, at the time that this article, this shoddy article, was written, <clears throat> manuscripts didn't exist. Well, I'd like to ask Mr. Matix, has he yet found the original manuscript of Matthew? If he has, he has known something that the vast majority of biblical scholars today have no knowledge of. The fact of the matter is that a reconstruction of a supposedly original Aramaic is a matter of conjecture. There is no original Aramaic. And I must ask you something else in regard to the inspiration of Scripture. When was Matthew inspired? Was it inspired only in the Aramaic original? And whoever did the translation of Matthew just, just, I don't know what... Controversy and boy, we wish we knew what was originally inspired. Don't we know anymore? No, my friends, we do. We do. Now, in regard to Protestant scholars in re, uh, interpreting Peter as the rock, I want to again point out to you that the Protestant, Protestant scholars that Jerry is talking about, while they view Peter as the rock, view this as a literal passage with a literal fulfillment in Peter and in Peter only. And I point out to you that if that is the proper interpretation of the passage, that that is the only proper interpretation of the passage, you cannot read into this passage the concept of successors. There is nothing in Matthew 16 that gives any indication that this promise to Peter has anything to do with succession. Moving on to the next point. Jerry talked about Pope Stephen and Cyprian. I would like to ask Jerry, did Cyprian call the Bishop of Rome Pope in those correspondences that we had with him? I'm not aware that he did. I'd like to ask Jerry to show me where he did. I'd like to be corrected about that. I don't think Cyprian called him Pope. And I'd like to point out to you as well in Cyprian's doctrine that Cyprian speaks of priests being elected by the people. And in fact, the Roman bishop, the bishop of Rome, was elected by the people until 1058, at which time the College of Cardinals, having evolved through the preceding couple of hundred years, now elected a, a person and then proceeded to present him to the people for their acclamation. But up until that time, as Cyprian taught, it is the people who determine who the, the priests are to be. That was his perspective. Cyprian did not believe that the bishop in Rome had a primacy that allowed him to tell Cyprian and the other bishops in North Africa what to do. He did not believe that. In regards to the Jerome quote, there are passages presented to your hearing regarding Jerome and his view of the Bishop of Rome. But I want to remind you again, why did I quote Jerome? Did I quote Jerome 
to try to tell you that Jerome didn't have some special view of the Bishop of Rome? No. If you recall why I quoted Jerome, I quoted Jerome in regards to the equality of the bishops, the equality of the bishops, and that a bishop in a great city like Rome or a bishop in a little city like Eugebium could not be considered to be in a hierarchical situation where one bishop's superiority to the other caused him to have a, a higher standing over him. Now, I want to present to you one of the, some of the words of one of the bishops of Rome. One of the bishops of Rome, Gregory I, one of the greatest bishops of Rome. He sat in Rome from 590 to 604. He strongly opposed the concept of a universal bishop. While Gregory himself took a number of actions that anyone will admit in the wake of the fall of the Western Emperor that led to the development of the medieval papacy and its attendant claims seen in such men as Innocent III, he himself did not believe in the theology that underlies much of modern Roman doctrine of the papacy, especially as seen in what I read to you originally from Vatican I. Too many things to bring up here. Let me give you some of the quotes from this bishop of Rome, Gregory the Great. Now, I confidently say that whosoever calls himself or desires to be called universal priest is in his elation the precursor of Antichrist because he proudly puts himself above all others. And he said more. If then he shunned the subjecting of the members of Christ partially to certain heads as if beside Christ, being with Paul, though this were to the apostles themselves, what wilt thou say to Christ, who is the head of the universal church, in the scrutiny of the last judgment, having attempted to put all his members under thyself by the appellation of universal? Who, I ask, is proposed for imitation in this wrongful title, but he who, despising the legions of angels, constituted socially with himself, attempted to start up to an eminence of singularity, that he might seem to be under none and to be alone above all. Gregory likens anyone who would claim to be universal bishop to, Luth- to Lucifer himself, who attempted to raise his throne above the throne of God himself in Isaiah chapter 14. Now I point out to you, that Gregory's successor took the title. Now, who is right? Is it Gregory or his successor? Which one? Clearly we see that Gregory does not believe in a universal bishop. He does not believe in a universal bishop. Mr. Matitix quoted from Irenaeus. So little time in one minute and 30 seconds. I will simply give you the reference. You can find these in almost any library around. The Antonicene Fathers, published by, I believe it's Erdman's, volume 1, page 415, and Irenaeus Against Heresies, right-hand column down the bottom of the page. You have the quotation that Mr. Matitix gave you. I would like to ask you to examine it in context for yourself. Finally, in regards to Revelation 3.7 and Isaiah chapter 22 and the presentation made by Mr. Matitix, where he didn't mention Revelation 3.7 originally, he said that Jesus took this language, he took this passage and applied it to Peter. I pointed out, no, he didn't. There's nothing in Matthew 16 that tells us he's quoting from Isaiah 22. When Jesus quotes Isaiah 22, he quotes it of himself. He's not simply hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 22. He's obviously quoting it. He's applying it to himself. And when he says he has the keys, it is a present participle. Jerry, ha echoed the one having the key, singular. It's singular in the Hebrew. It's singular in the Greek Revelation 3.7. It's impossible for me to think about how a person could not see that. 
I'd like to also point out that no early church father that I've been able to find the first 700 years of the church used Mr. Matatik's argument from Isaiah chapter 22. The keys spoken of by Jesus is plural, not singular, and those keys are given to all of the apostles in Matthew chapter 18, not to Peter alone. Thank you very much. Cross-examination section. Under the cross-examination section, each person will have 30 seconds in which to frame a question. The other will have two minutes to respond. And then the questioner will have one minute to rebut. Mr. White will go first, and then we'll go back and forth. And uh, Mr. Matatix will have the last opportunity to to ask that question. So why don't we have Mr. White begin. Uh, Mr. Matatix, in regards to the concept of the papacy, Uh, I would like to ask you, uh, as I presented originally, uh, if you feel that the treatment by the Apostle Paul of the Apostle Peter in Galatians chapter 2 is consonant with modern Roman Catholic teaching in regards to the position of the Pope in the church. Yes, absolutely. You asked the question, would Paul have spoken this way to the vicar of Christ? Would he have rebuked him to his face? There is nothing in the Catholic understanding of the papacy that makes the Pope invulnerable to criticism as to uh, his behavior, inconsistent behavior. Remember, I mean, this kind of, this is not really logical thinking. Remember that Peter himself was willing to rebuke Jesus. In, later on in Matthew 16, he knows that Jesus is infallible, but he draws him aside and says, I've got to suffer, and begins to rebuke him. No, Lord, I don't want this to happen to you. The recognition of authority in someone doesn't mean that you can't strongly disagree with them at times. This idea that, I mean, this, this would turn uh, on its head all notion of authority. You know, does the President of the United States not have authority over certain lesser uh, servants? Does, is it somehow thrown into question if they indeed ever disagree with him? Do you men not have authority as heads of your household if your children are ever rebellious against you? Of course not. Here, however, we do not have an example of wrong rebellion or, or something uh, that's inappropriate as it was when Peter rebuked uh, Jesus or when your, your children rebuked you. We have an example of legitimate rebuke. We have ex- instances throughout history where popes have done things that are wrong and, and Catholic uh, godly people have rebuked them. St. Catherine of Siena rebuked the Pope. Uh, Many, many possibilities uh, of citing examples here. There's nothing wrong with that because the Catholic Church does not teach that the Pope is impeccable, that is faultless in his performance or behavior, but infallible in what he teaches. And Paul stresses when he talks to Peter that Peter is not guilty of heresy. He says, Peter, you and I agree that we do not need to uh, eat kosher and be circumcised and so forth. He calls Peter a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who doesn't practice what he preaches. But with what Peter preached, with his creed, Paul had no objection. If, if uh, Mr. White is going to say, look, his morals, his behavior is involved in his teaching, then he's going to end up attacking his own in- infallibility of, of the apostles because they'll say they're not infallible when they write scripture. Now you have one match. Thank you. Of course, I wasn't raising the issue of impeccability whatsoever. Uh, Paul's rebuke of Peter was hardly simply a criticism. 
is struck at the very core of the gospel. Yes, uh, uh, Peter did question Jesus and take him aside, and Jesus' response was he called Peter Satan by saying, get behind me. But in regards to the issue of people down through the ages having questioned and rebuked the Roman Catholic pontiff, that is very true. But without getting into the attempting to say that this in and of itself disproves the concept of papacy, I must remind us, who are historically minded, I hope, that some people, such as Savonarola in Florence, who questioned the papacy and rebuked the Pope, were burned for their efforts. Uh, that obviously, I think, uh, shows that a re simply a rebuke of the Roman Catholic Pope has been understood in the Church uh, through the history, and certainly in light of Vatican I, uh, as being something that shows us that Paul's view of, of Peter is not the same view as is held by the Roman Catholic Church in modern times. Mr. Mattis has 30 seconds to ask a question. Would you listen to the following quote, please, Mr. White? Simon, my follower, I have made you the foundation of the Holy Church. I used to formally call you Peter because you, uh, or I at times, excuse me, called you Peter because you will support all its buildings. You are the inspector of those who will build on earth the church for me. If they should wish to build what is false, you, the foundation, will condemn them. You are the head of the fountain from which my teaching flows. You are the chief of my disciples. Through you I will give drink to all peoples. Yours is that life-giving sweetness which I dispense. I have chosen you to be, as it were, the firstborn of my institution, so that as heir, you may be the executor of my treasures. I have given you the keys of my kingdom. Behold, I give you authority over all my treasures. How can Ephraim of Syria say something like that if there's no basis for it in Scripture? Well, obviously, how could Origen have said many things he said when we both would agree there's absolutely no basis in Scripture for them either? Uh, I don't happen to believe, as Vatican I said, that the concept of the papacy is found in the unanimous consent of the early fathers or in consent with what they believe. The point that we must keep in mind tonight is that I have demonstrated that early fathers disagreed with the Roman position. I have demonstrated that to be the case, men that otherwise the Roman church considers to be orthodox, and therefore, since it is incumbent upon you, Mr. Manatix, to demonstrate that the papal position is the only position that can be taken, that it is a position of absolute authority, that, that Peter was given this primacy, then it is up to you to demonstrate that these individuals did not dissent and did not disagree. But I also, in response to, say, in response to that, you asked me sort of a rhetorical question. How could Ephraim have said these things? I respond to you. How could so many popes down through history have allowed the donations of Constantine, which we know today were complete and total forgery, but were used to prop up papal claims throughout the Middle Ages and into the 1400s when Lorenzo Valla discovered they were uh, uh, frauds and forgeries? How could popes have used these things who were in, fra in fact fraud? It's just as much a rhetorical question as the question that you asked me. Well, the donations of Constantine were discovered by um, later methods of literary criticism to be inauthentic, but the Catholics does not claim that popes are infallible in their understanding of literature and, and language and all sorts of things. You would have to argue that they were being deliberate in that point. Newman said this, it is less of a difficulty that the papal supremacy was not formally acknowledged in the second century than that there was no formal acknowledgement of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity until the fourth century. No doctrine is defined until it's violated. But so like you yourself believe that on fundamental issues like the deity of Christ, the two natures in one person, it took the church time. And godly men and sincere men disagreed on many of these things. It takes time as a cumulative effect. So the fact that some fathers didn't see this truth doesn't mean that eventually the true view couldn't win out on the papacy, just as it does on other things. Uh, I could quote to you early church fathers who disagree with the deity of Christ or the fact that he would have two wills or whatever, and you wouldn't use that in any debate as an argument that Christ but this, therefore, this is not the authentic and orthodox teaching which Jesus and the apostles intended us to adhere to. 
So I think we have to be consistent here. I obviously disagree very... I'm sorry. Go ahead. I obviously disagree very strongly that the doctrine of Trinity could in any way possibly be parallel to the concept of papacy. The doctrine of Trinity is clear in Scripture. The number of passages that clearly teach the deity of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, is, be, is beyond question, so far beyond the, the thin layer of passages that have been presented to us and the thin interpretation that presented to us. Father's not seeing your view? Most definitely, but we would consider any father who denied the deity of Christ to be unorthodox. And I would also point out to you in regards to the two wills issue that Pope Honorius, one of the popes of the Catholic Church, as you would claim, then one of the bishops of Rome, held a false view of that issue. The issue again is, does the scripture teach this? Does the scripture teach it? And I do not believe the scripture does it all with anywhere near uh, the amount of evidence that the scriptures teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no way of paralleling the two whatsoever. Now we go on and have uh, Mr. White cross-examine. Uh, Mr. Matatix, you uh, allege that in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Peter is given, well, I can't tell if it's key or keys because of the Isaiah 22 issue, but he's given keys. Do you not agree that in Matthew chapter 18, these keys are also given to all of the apostles? I do not agree because I want to stick with the text of Scripture at this point. I don't allege that Peter was given keys in Matthew 16. I read it right in the Scripture for myself. Jesus says, our Lord himself, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's not my allegation. Those are the words of Jesus Christ himself. You and I and everyone here has to deal with them. What did Jesus mean when he gave keys to Peter? It's a sign. It's a symbol of authority. What authority did Jesus expect Peter to exercise? And are those keys transferable by virtue of the understanding of the keys transferred that we read about in Isaiah 22? The answer is yes. In Matthew 18, there is no reference to keys, ladies and gentlemen. Look in the Bible for yourself. Jesus repeats to the apostles as a whole that whatever they bind will be bound, whatever they loose will be loose, but there's no reference to the keys. The keys are exercised by the prime minister. You can't have 12 prime ministers. They're all ministers. They're all important. And the fact that Peter can refer to other elders, other bishops, as a fellow elder at this point, there is a true collegiality. There is, there, there is an authority they share in common. But it's an incredibly weak argument to say that because Peter says in 1 Peter 5, I, as a fellow elder, beseech you, therefore he's not aware of any primacy, that, that just doesn't follow. I mean, when Richard Nixon said, my fellow Americans, he wasn't saying, gee, I guess, you know, I'm no more uh, authoritative than you are. I'm just a fellow American with you. You can appeal to people out of, out of humility and, and modesty. I mean, the, the, the classic and the famous title of the Pope is Servant of the Servants of God. He doesn't have to swagger and say, I've got the right to tell you. No father does that. No husband does that. No pastor says, I'm the pastor, do what I say. You can appeal at a lower level. I say to my kids all the time, look, this isn't going to be good for our family for you to behave this way. I don't necessarily have to dictate to them in a certain way. There's, there's a, there are various styles of authority and government. And simply because Peter uses a humbler style here to, to build an argument from silence and say, therefore, he's utterly unconscious of any, nothing from his pen or mouth indicates any conscience on his part of any kind of primacy, doesn't make any sense. Would Peter have forgotten what Jesus said to him? No. Obviously, Peter didn't forget what Jesus said to him. That's why Peter always referred to Christ as the rock and not to himself. Mr. Matatix continues to confuse key and keys. If you want to use Isaiah chapter 22, it's a key. It's not keys. It's not plural. Uh, the key in Isaiah chapter 22, according to Jesus Christ, and I take his interpretation as absolutely authoritative, is his own and his own alone. 
Uh, therefore, there's obviously no ability to use Isaiah chapter 22 in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, when he el- uh, talks about the people as a fellow elder, you said he does not have to swagger about. That is very true. He does not. But there is nothing in Scripture. Talk about arguments from silence. There is nothing in Scripture that you can present to me that Peter viewed himself as anything but a fellow elder. You have to read into the idea that he considered himself a pope or the head of the church. And there simply has been nothing that you have presented at all this evening from anywhere in Scripture that would lead anyone who's simply reading Scripture to believe that Peter was the head of the church, the Holy Father, the Vicar of Christ on earth. Those terms are never used of him and they are not in any way accurately representing what the scripture teaches about him. Mr. Matatrix, turn to cross-examine. Mr. White, if you look at those passages that you cited from the Council of Carthage and, uh, and other, uh, the apostolic canons, don't you need to uh, admit to this audience that the context there is talking about local matters, that uh, when Cyprian says, no one of us sets us up uh, sets ourself up as a bishop of bishops, he's talking about no one bishop of a local area sets himself over another, but he's not speaking to the issue of the bishop of Rome. And the same is true of the apostolic canons. No, I strongly disagree, especially in light of Cyprian's rebuke of Stephen and Stephen's uh, attempt to interfere in the affairs of the North African church in regard to the heretic Basilides. Uh, I do not believe, again, that we can avoid the fact of making this significant allegation that the Roman Catholic Church, in attempting to build its concept of the papacy, is guilty of taking modern concepts and reading them back into ancient documents. I would challenge anyone to read the ancient documents for themselves, not simply selected portions of them that are put together under titles, but the whole documents themselves, and they will see that these beliefs were not the universal faith of the Church. And I must remind you that if the Roman Catholic position of an infallible church and an infallible pope can is to be maintained this evening in debate it must be demonstrated that this is the only interpretation of these passages I have demonstrated to you and Mr. Matix has admitted that early fathers did not hold this position they denied this position they functioned in the church with the denial of this position and therefore since it is obvious that men have disagreed about this men who are inside the church then obviously the Roman Catholic perspective that has to have absolute authority cannot win the day. Folks, several things that I have to take exception to. First of all, it is not a question of modern statements being, uh, modern concepts being read back into ancient statements. Read for yourself, take Mr. White's advice, sit down and read through Giles' documents concerning papal authority collected by a Protestant all the, all the relevant uh, material, and you will see the reason he stops this book in 454 is by that point there is consensus in the church that when Leo, for example, speaks at the Council of Council, which he did not mention, the people say, Peter has spoken, the matter is settled. Leo's tome decides the doctrine of the two natures in the one person. It is a misrepresentation of the Catholic position that there must be unanimity among all the fathers or the Catholic Church has no right to say this is the right view. There were differing views on this and on many doctrinal points. But the, the, the truthfulness of the view that the Catholic Church represents from the 5th century on with consensus and unanimity is on the basis of the infallibility of the Pope, which infallibility is not the issue of, of debate tonight. I can't take the time to develop arguments for it. We now proceed to the next cross-examiner. I forget who it is. 
Well, thank you. Well, uh, this be the last series, sir? Yes, it will. Okay, this be the last series. Right. Mr. Matatix, you have undertaken this evening to defend the proposition that Peter was made a pope and that there is an office of successors in the papacy. I simply must ask, very basically, what passage do you feel gives you the right to believe that Peter himself believed himself, from Peter if you would please, if you believe such a passage exists, to be the vicar of Christ on earth? to break this down to the various components. First of all, the question is, did Peter have a primacy? We can't talk about successors or successor primacy unless we establish that. And as I have read to you over and over again, Protestant scholars are willing to admit this. These scholars, I agree, do not see the primacy as having succession. That's clear, but they're willing to say what Max Turian said. Uh, it is the universally held opinion of all reputable scripture scholars that the primacy of Peter is evident without exception in all the Gospels. That's in his book, One in Christ, published in 1986. So the primacy of Peter is acknowledged by Kuhlmann in his classic work. He's the Protestant expert on Peter in his book, Peter, Disciple, Apostle, and Martyr. They don't think it has succession, but one thing at a time. Are you willing to see that Peter has a primacy, a headship? If so, then let's move to the second question. Would Jesus want this headship to pass away uh, at the end of Peter's life? No. There is succession, Jesus said, dynastic succession built into the office of prime minister. We see that in Isaiah 22. Secondly, we see in Acts 1 that the apostles were understood automatically, without argument, to need successors. And thirdly, when we read the evidence of the early church fathers and all the believers in the early church, nobody doesn't believe in apostolic succession. Everybody that talks about the teachers in the church that day say that the official ones have derived their authority from the apostles. There are no Protestants in the early church who say apostles don't have successors. There is no one that says Peter doesn't have any successors. Everyone acknowledges that the Bishop of Rome is a successor to Peter who died there, even if they might want to disagree or in a moment of wanting to be disobedient dispute the, the, uh, the, the rights of that bishop to, to lord it over them, certainly Cyprian disputes uh, with Stephen on certain occasions and, and, and uh, thus and so, but everyone understands that the bishop of Rome didn't just pop out of nowhere, he derives his authority from Peter, and the evidence in a book like Giles is overwhelming on that, on that point. I'm sorry, Mr. Maddox, you never even began to address my question. My question was, uh, do you find a single passage in scripture uh, where Peter expresses or gives any uh, indication that he feels himself to be the vicar of Christ on earth, uh, my personal position is there obviously is no such passage anywhere in Scripture. But in regards to what you did say, uh, you again brought up Isaiah chapter 22. I again point out one more time, Isaiah chapter 22 has nothing to do with Peter. Jesus himself interpreted in light of himself. I reject Mr. Maddox's interpretation. I present you with Jesus' interpretation and let you go from there. Secondly, in regards to apostolic succession in the, uh, in the early church fathers, I point out to you, apostolic succession does not equal papacy. Apostolic succession does not equal papacy. Thank you. We are now to the end. And if you like this, I think you like rope burn, too. <laughs> this is lively, but uh, certainly jarring, too. Uh, so much in one evening. I thank you on behalf of both uh, debaters for your patience and for your attention. The closing remarks will last ten minutes apiece. Mr. Matatix will begin, 
and Mr. White will close. Well, you've heard a lot tonight, and it puts an enormous burden upon you to have to sit down and wrestle through these scriptures and this evidence. I would like to close with kind of a smorgasbord of, of uh, separate points here. Uh, I don't know how much organic unity I can guarantee to them. I, I have argued this evening, and most Protestant scholars are willing to admit this, that there is evidence in the Gospels from the lips of our Lord himself that Jesus gave Peter a primacy. Let's take things one at a time. The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus said something special to Peter that he doesn't say to the other apostles in Matthew 16. He gives him a new name. And a name that means rock. And you've got to deal with that. He gives him the keys of the kingdom of heaven and nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus say he gives keys to the kingdom of heaven to anybody else. Mr. White cannot produce such a verse. Jesus says, Peter, I will protect the apostles by praying for you, singular, and you will be a source of strength to your brethren. And I believe that church history bears that out. At times of great doctrinal confusion in the church, at times on issues that Mr. White and I would agree on, like the deity of Christ and the two natures in one person and the fact that Christ had two wills and, and the rejection of Pelagianism, the Bishop of Rome played a fundamental and decisive role and as people joined and allied themselves with him as Irenaeus said they had an obligation to and I'll read that in closing uh, the church was led into paths of truth and righteousness for his name's sake we see that Jesus says to Peter in John 21 something he doesn't say to the others feed my sheep feed my lambs tend my flock and we see that because of this every time the apostles are listed Peter is listed first. Every time the twelve are listed. Mr. White uh, was, I don't think, uh, actually speaking what I was talking about when he said, hey, in Galatians 2.9, that isn't true. Galatians 2.9 does not give you a list of the twelve apostles. So it's not at all a contradiction to what I was saying. But in the Gospels, Jesus, uh, though he didn't select Peter first, has inspired the, the various Gospel writers to put Peter first, to give him a priority. And throughout the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts, we see Peter exercising a leadership role. In Acts 1, as I already mentioned, in Acts 2, he's the one who preaches on the day of Pentecost and opens the doors. On Acts 3, he performs the first miracle. In Acts 4, he's the one that replies to the Sanhedrin in the name of all twelve. In Acts 5, he's the judge in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts 8, he's the one sent by the church of Jerusalem along with John. And the idea of a group sending a couple members of that group there's no indication that they have inferior authority or simply equal authority. It happens all the time in Washington, D.C. That congressmen will send, for example, a couple of them up to, uh, up to the White House and something, and there's no indication that those senators are somehow the, uh, lesser or to, or to be uh, you know, dictated to by the body as a whole. Uh, in Acts chapter 11, he opens the doors to the Gentiles. And in Acts 15, contrary to Mr. White's exegesis, he does have a decisive role to play in the Council of Jerusalem. It is a fact of history that James at this point was the head of the church in Jerusalem and so was the presiding head of this local council. Uh, we read in Acts 12 that Peter had to leave town. The disciples wanted him to stay alive and you wonder why that is. Why did they consider him so significant and indispensable? They wanted him uh, to get out of town so that he wouldn't be put to death. He had already been liberated by the angel. But in Acts 15, when there's tremendous dispute and controversy over this whole issue, after much debate, Peter got up and spoke to them. 
and delivers uh, a rather definitive statement. And as and it says, when, the moment he's done speaking in verse 12, the whole assembly then fell silent and then allowed Barnabas and Saul to tell their story of what had happened. And James, as the head of the local church there in Jerusalem, then sums the matter up. I don't think there's anything in Galatians to, to deny this primacy. Mr. White actually um, confused me a little bit there. He said his last question was, show me any place. This is, I wrote it down as he asked it. Show me a place in scripture which indicates a, a primacy or leadership in Peter. Have it from Peter, if you will. And then, though I didn't uh, decide to use Peter as, as an example, he said, you didn't speak to my question at all. You didn't quote Peter at all. He said, I could pick Peter if I wanted. I didn't pick Peter because I think Peter exercises that modesty, that humility that I spoke of and doesn't point to himself. And he doesn't use uh, all kinds of titles that he could have perhaps justly used. But even the use of titles develops. No one's going to say that because he didn't use the word Pope, therefore the concept of the papacy is not true any more than just because you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible doesn't mean that the doctrine isn't true. As Mr. White has himself reminded us, it is. Um, but in Galatians chapter 1, G, uh, uh, Paul goes to great lengths to say he went up to Jerusalem in fear that he had perhaps misconstrued the gospel and he consulted with Peter, James, and John. James, Peter, and John, excuse me, is, is the order there. And, and uh, that's Mr. White's point, but that's not the point that I was making. And he says that these were pillars. They had a position of preeminence. Peter, James, and John had that higher circle of intimacy with Christ. And they fully agreed with me. They ratified my gospel. They said there was nothing wrong with what I was teaching. So when Peter came to Antioch, I knew I was on good grounds in opposing him to his face because his behavior didn't jive with his creed. And he appeals to Peter as someone who shares the same theology. I saw they weren't acting in line with the gospel. I said to Peter, we know that, Jude that circumcision and kosher foods and all these other works of the Mosaic law are no longer pertinent to our justification in Christ. So he, he doesn't accuse Peter of teaching heresy. Far from it. And if you're going to say his behavior constitutes false teaching, then as I say, Mr. White has got a problem. Because then he's got to admit that the, that the apostles, not just Peter, whom we're claiming is the first bishop of Rome and therefore the predecessor of the, of the subsequent popes, but all the apostles are no longer infallible teachers. And yet, he would believe that. He would believe that they are trustworthy teachers of the gospel in their official teaching, not in their behavior. Infallibility, not impeccability. There is nothing in 1 Peter 5 uh, that would amount to a renunciation of a primacy. And so I don't see any evidence in Scripture that is against this primacy that I have indicated exists there. There is nothing in Scripture, there is no episode, there is no statement made that says Peter is not the head of the church. And there are all of these passages, some of which Mr. White has not addressed, like the Luke 22 passage, and, and the other ideas, the other uh, examples, for example, Peter being listed first. Why is Peter made so much of? Why is he given this, this shown and spotlighted to have this leadership role, if indeed he was simply equal in every sense of the word, in every single way, with all the other apostles? My second point is this. If you are willing to grant at least the probability at this point, and I'm not the Pope, I cannot speak with infallibility uh, here tonight. I, I uh, am not asking you to accept my words as infallible. And so Mr. White's uh, words to that effect, again, I think are counterproductive, or at least not to the point. I'm asking you to weigh the evidence and to assign the probability of it. But if you are willing to follow the majority of responsible Protestant scholars in this century and say, yes, Peter certainly has a leadership, a headship, a primacy that is undeniable in the Gospels. Now the question is, what happens to that headship? 
No serious historian in the 20th century denies that Peter went to Rome and died there and functioned as Bishop of Rome there. The fact that he didn't happen to be there when this letter or that letter was addressed is, is not a very good argument. He traveled perhaps just as much as, as our current Pope does. And just because he's out of town when Peter writes a letter to Rome doesn't prove that he's not there. The evidence is overwhelming, ladies and gentlemen. There is not a single document that Mr. White can cite that says Peter went somewhere else. Uh, that he, he exalted or, or um, establishes bishopric in some other city. Everyone that talks about where Peter was martyred says that it was in Rome. Are you going to give me a two-minute warning? One and a half minute. One and a half minute. Okay, I guess you're going to give me one and a half minute warning. Um, the evidence is there that Peter went to Rome, functioned as bishop there, and Mr. White has to accept this testimony if, I say if, he wants to be consistent and say, I want to know that the books that I have are indeed inspired scripture written by apostles or apostolic men. Because these same church fathers who tell us about Peter's sojourn in Rome and his dying in Rome and his bishopric in Rome uh, are the ones who provide us the information because they're doing so in the context of saying he wrote two letters and, and, you know, uh, and, and Paul wrote letters as well. And Peter and Paul, they ended up after writing these letters and, and uh, so forth going to Rome and dying there. The last point is this. Does any other city claim to be the inheritor of Peter's primacy. No. There is no evidence in the early church that any other city says, no, we ought to have the preeminence because we are uh, the recipients of the authority of a greater apostle. Rome is the only candidate, folks. And so Irenaeus is right when he says that um, uh, we can go to that church which is uh, the greatest, most ancient, well-known church found and established by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. And this church, on account of her more powerful principality, it is necessary that every church should, should agree with. That is the faithful from everywhere. Um, and um, in which the tradition from the apostles is preserved perfectly by those who are from all parts. Thank you very much. I appreciate very much your patience and your attendance this evening. You have been an excellent audience. I thank you for being here tonight. A few comments in regards to Jerry's closing statements. Peter as a rock, as certain Protestant scholars will admit, I don't necessarily believe it's a majority, it's certainly not a majority of all Protestant scholars since the Reformation, obviously, but even if it was a majority of modern scholars, seeing Peter as a rock does not equal... The idea that he has a primacy. Make sure you understand that. Jerry, I think, walks the line a little bit on that point in saying, well, Protestant scholars, responsible Protestant scholars, recognize this. And then he goes on to say, well, if Protestants say, this Protestant majority say that Peter is the rock, what happened to the headship? And you see, that's not what those Protestant scholars are saying. They're not alleging that Peter had a headship of the church. And they're not alleging, and in fact, they ultimately deny very clearly that that type of headship was anything that could be given. The supremacy that was his was his because he was chosen to be the first one to proclaim the gospel, to use the keys, their declarative power in preaching the gospel to people. And they would tell you, wait a minute, Jerry, you're misunderstanding us. What do you mean, where did it go historically? We don't believe it could have gone anywhere historically because it's only in Peter and Peter alone. Look at them for yourselves on that. If Matthew chapter 18 
And Miss Matthew said, well, there's no mention of keys here. Well, that's true if you look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. But you read it for yourself. If Matthew chapter 18 is not where Peter receives the keys, tell me, where does he? Where does he? I don't know where he does at all. John chapter 21, Mr. Matthew mentioned that the words, feed my sheep, were only spoken to Peter. So, it was only to Peter that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Is that relevant? Is that significant? I don't believe that it is. He pointed out the fact that I did not address the issue of Luke chapter 12, where Jesus prays specifically for Peter. I simply point out to you that I didn't feel it was really something that had to be high on my priority list because Jesus prays for all of us, does he not? Does he not intercede for all of us? Does he not intercede specifically for our weaknesses? Jesus knows the weakness of Peter. Jesus knows that Peter is the one who can fail. And Jesus prays for him. That hardly makes Peter into a position of being the first pope. In Acts chapter 15, we have a conference, a council of the entire church. Now, let me ask you something. I must ask Jerry. Would Innocent III have sat as the second in a council of the entire church to some other bishop? I doubt very much that he would have. So, obviously, Peter did not view himself as a pope. I asked Jerry, and if I misspoke, I apologize. But the question I asked Jerry in cross-examination was, does Peter ever anywhere in the scripture give indication from himself that he views himself as the vicar of Christ? And Jerry answers, Peter doesn't do so. He doesn't point to himself because of humility. I only ask rhetorically, why have so many of those who claim to be his successors down to the ages failed to follow his example? History is replete with many who were anything but humble in their claims to being the vicar of Christ and the Holy Father. Now, Mr. Matatik said that there is nothing in Scripture against papal supremacy. I would like to say there is nothing in Scripture for it. And a great deal that shows that Peter didn't believe it, Paul didn't believe it, and no one acted in any way that says that they did. But I want to remind you of the gravity and the importance of this topic. Let me remind you of what I said earlier. This is Roman Catholic dogmatic teaching. If anyone, therefore, shall say that blessed Peter the Apostle was not appointed the prince of all the apostles and the visible head of the whole church militant, or that the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ a promise of honor only and not of true and proper jurisdiction, listen closely, my friends, let him be anathema. Now, if the Roman Catholic Church is going to anathematize someone for not accepting a position, then I feel that it is right for us to demand of the Roman Catholic Church absolute and unequivocal evidence that it is true. And my friends, I have to ask you, has my opponent this evening, from the pages of Scripture, given you absolute and unequivocal evidence that Peter was the first pope and his successors continue in his stead? I submit to you that he has not because no one can. The Scriptures do not teach it. The Scriptures do not teach it. The New Testament does not present any concept or office of a pope or a papacy. The New Testament instead presents the Church of Christ with him as the sole head. And that church is indwelt by the vicar of Christ, which is not any man. And I submit to you that the Apostle Peter, who knew the Holy Spirit, would never have accepted the name vicar of Christ because he knew his own Lord Jesus' teaching that the vicar of Christ on earth is the Holy Spirit of God. It is a church that is obedient to the Word of God, the Bible. 
The New Testament teaches that the bishop, overseer, or presbyter is a servant of the church, not her lord or ruler. The New Testament teaches that each and every believer, each and every believer is a priest, one who is responsible before God for the revelation he has given in his word, who cannot possibly place that responsibility upon anyone else. And you cannot do that this evening. As you sit here this evening, you must make a decision. I am not going to stand before you and say, well, my opponent has not provided a single passage that to my concept, my thinking, proves his point, therefore I proclaim myself a victor. I will not treat you in that way. You are the one who must make up your mind. You are the one who must make up your decision. I respect you too much to put yourself in a position saying, well, I win. No. The debate tonight, the challenge tonight, was to prove that Peter was a pope. I have seen nothing in Scripture that presents that. And that Peter has successors throughout the history of the church. I see nothing in Scripture that presents that either. But you as an individual, no matter where you're coming from, you must make the decision tonight. Because let me tell you something. The Roman Catholic Church claims to be the infallible church. A, a charism of infallibility has been given to the Roman Catholic Church. And therefore, their interpretation of Matthew chapter 16, whether you feel it is completely stretched and without any basis whatsoever, you have to accept it if you're a Roman Catholic. And some have said, well, it's certainly foolish to leave something that is certain for something that is uncertain. We have the infallible church. We have absolute security and certainty. And I would, I would submit to you, you have no more absolute certainty than the certainty and infallibility of yourself. Because ultimately, you have to make the decision whether to accept the Roman Catholic claim of infallibility, including that of the papacy, or not. If you can make a mistake in accepting that ultimate authority, my friends, there are many who claim it. Rome isn't the only one claiming ultimate authority. Rome isn't the only one claiming this, this succession, this apostolic power. There are many.